C. diff spores and more is brought to you in part by Rebiotics, Microbiota Restoration Therapy. Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here's your host, Nancy Kerala. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today, and we welcome you to Seed of Spores and More. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor, Rebiotics, a fairing pharmaceuticals company, for their generous support. You can find out more about their microbiome research and clinical trials at www.rebiotics, that's R-E-B-I-O-T-I-X.com. At this time, we'd like to welcome our... Uh, guest, Dr. Henry R. Herrera, MD, and he is joining us today to discuss C. diff and inflammatory bowel disease from bad to worse. At this time, I'd like to welcome Dr. Herrera to the program. Welcome today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Herrera. It's my pleasure, Nancy. Thank you so much. And, you know, I, I did do a little research. I kind of looked up, uh, you know, your, your history with C. diff and, and your experiences with it. And, and, you know, I think it's just such an amazing thing that you've done with the program and, and just the ability to uh, raise awareness for, for C. diff and to just let everybody know that it's, a, uh, it's an important uh, disease process to know about. It's an important bacteria that uh, everybody needs to be aware of. And, and obviously, there's a lot of patients out there who take uh, antibiotics and, and, you know, doctors who will prescribe it uh, more liberally than they should. And, and as we'll go into um, the talk, we'll talk about the risk factors um, that predispose uh, patients to C. diff. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Herrera, thank you so much for um, looking up the program and, and learning a little bit why we do what we do and um, how, you know, being a survivor is is major and to help the patients and families out there who are suffering through this. It's it's really important. And, and it's physicians and professionals like you that make it so much better. And we are so glad that you're here today. Would you mind taking a moment just to introduce yourself and share a little bit of your background with our global listeners? Absolutely. So my name is Henry Herrera. So I'm a, a gastroenterologist currently uh, practicing in South Texas, in Edinburgh, Texas. I, I work here at uh, DHR Health um, Hospital. Originally from South Texas, uh, I did my medical training in Dallas at UT Southwestern, did my internal medicine residency there as well, and then I uh, went to Temple, Texas at Baylor Scott & White for my uh, gastroenterology fellowship, uh, and there I did training in advanced endoscopy at USCRCP. Um, I was able to get back into contact with uh, several physicians that were here in, in, uh, in South Texas, in Edinburgh, and uh, you know I still have family who, who lives here, and so it was just a great fit. So I've, I've been here for the last three years. Um, um, it's been great, and you know, just as any other part of the country, we deal with C. diff very, very often. Um, it's you know, it, it's uh, in the hospital. We see it in the outpatient setting. Um, so you know, when I was looking through and and, and saw this uh, saw the show, and I was able to talk to you about it, I mean, I thought it was a great opportunity to. Um, to discuss it. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's uh, vital that patients get, get this information because um, it could prevent uh, uh, future severe illness and, and uh, morbidity and mortality. Exactly. And thank you so much, Dr. Herrera. And the DHR Health in Edinburgh, Texas, are so lucky to have you there. And we can appreciate, yes, and we're, we appreciate what everything that you do for the patients. And, you know, we just want to ask you, and we you know this name of the the program is C. diff spores and more, but if you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just explaining exactly what is a C. difficile infection? 
Absolutely. And, you know, for, for anybody who's, who's uh, listening for the first time, and I'm sure there's also uh, return listeners, but just a brief introduction and kind of refresher for what C. diff is. So, you know, uh, it's full name, it's Clostridioides difficile and otherwise known more universally as C. diff. So it's a highly transmissible bacteria um, that can produce really significant diarrheal illness. Uh, it's responsible for about half a million illnesses in the U.S. per year. Uh, what it does is it colonizes the large intestine and releases uh, protein toxins that cause colitis in uh, susceptible individuals. So the infection is transmitted through ingestion of spores uh, that are produced by these bacteria. These spores are highly resistant to heat, acid, and antibiotics. And so the problem with these spores is that they're everywhere. Uh, you can find them all over our healthcare facilities, on tables, on doorknobs, on restrooms, you name it. I mean, to go along with that, you know, any clothes that comes into contact with it, stethoscopes, um, everything can get contaminated with these spores. Um, you also find them in low levels in the environment and food supply. So from a microbiologic standpoint, um, C. diff is a gram-positive spore-forming anaerobe, um, typically transmitted via, via the fecal-oral route, meaning that at some point um, somebody's stool uh, either touched a table or you know, somebody didn't wash their hands, um, that stool contains spores, you touch this table, and, and that's, that's how this infection gets transmitted. Um, so this bacteria is able to cause a, spect from a spectrum of diarrheal illnesses from mild to severe, and it can produce a similar spectrum of inflammation within the large intestine or the colon. Um, yeah, it can be really quite severe. So in the most severe cases, it can lead to a condition known as toxic megacolon. Um, it can also cause colonic perforation, it can cause septic shock, and, and uh, unfortunately even, even cause death. Exactly. Thank you so much, Dr. Herrera, for sharing that information. And you know, Dr. Herrera, can you tell us who's at greater risk for contracting a C. difficile infection? Yeah. So, you know, uh, decreased intestinal microbial diversity along with a diminished or inadequate immune response is thought to play a major role in development of C. diff infection. So, um, you know, we talked about it in the introduction, but antibiotic exposure is by far the most well-recognized risk factor. So ampicillin, amoxicillin, cephalosporins, clindamycin, uh, fluoroquinolones are the most frequently associated with C. diff. And the problem is a lot of these medicines are used for very kind of standard uh, symptoms and, and complaints from patients. So, you know, you talk about your upper respiratory infections, your coughs. Um, a lot of patients will come in and, and basically their expectation is that, you know, I'm, I'm feeling sick, I need an antibiotic. Um, so how is the antibiotics, which are supposed to kill bacteria, can be a risk factor for contracting one, right? So what, what happens is antibiotics lead to alterations in gut microbiota. Uh, so when this happens, the gut microbiota's protective barrier is reduced, and it makes way for an invasive organism such as C. diff to enter and cause disease. Um, now I want to take a minute about the, to talk about the importance of the intestinal microbiome because I think it's uh, important that the general public um, know about it. They may not be fully aware of just exactly how important and beneficial it, it is to your body. So when I say intestinal microbiome, I'm referring to the normal microbial population which lives in our intestines. Believe it or not, in humans, the GI tract represents a large microbial ecosystem. So this ecosystem houses several trillion microbial cells. These trillions of bacteria, which are a normal part of our gut, play a critical role in the maturation and continued education of our host immune response. They provide protection against pathogen overgrowth, such as C. diff. They influence host cell proliferation and vascularization. They regulate intestinal endocrine functions, neurologic signaling, and even help with bone density. And get this, they're even a source of energy for us. So about 5 to 10% of daily host energy requirements come from our microbiome. Um, 
you know, in addition to that, they're responsible for biosynthesis of certain vitamins, certain neurotransmitters. They metabolize bile salts. They modify specific drugs that we take, and they eliminate toxins. So the list of benefits to the human body goes on and on. Point made, right? Um, then you think, my goodness, I'm taking all these medicines, taking all these antibiotics, which are constantly killing off these unbelievably important microbes. No wonder I'm more susceptible to disease like C. diff. Exactly. Thank you so much, Dr. Herrera, for introducing the microbiome, uh, a fantastic new um, an, an, uh, anatomy find and researching going on. It's a wonderful uh, new topic that is, you know, um, exploring and, and sharing so much information. And Absolutely. Dr. Herrera, um, can you explain how C. difficile infections are diagnosed? Sure. Yeah, so, so C. diff um, is, is diagnosed via several diagnostic assays. So there's several that exist, um, DNA-based tests or nucleic acid amplification tests via PCR look for the C. diff toxin genes. Um, and those have been found, this particular test, the PCR has been found to be more sensitive than the previous uh, tests, which are toxin A and B enzyme immunoassays. Um, and so the PCR is currently recommended as a preferred diagnostic test for C. diff infection. Uh, you know, one, one thing I do want to mention um, before I forget is that it's very important people understand that C. diff can also colonize healthy children and adults. So colonization is very different than active C. diff infection. Colonization typically doesn't result in clinical symptoms of diarrhea. So, you know, only order a C. diff PCR in patients who are having diarrhea, um, typically more than three watery bowel movements in a 24-hour period. Otherwise, what can happen is, you know, you end up uh, ordering a C. diff test for uh, a nonspecific symptom such as abdominal cramping. They end up coming back positive, but they don't have diarrhea. And now you're in a dilemma because the patient's worried they have an infection. You don't want to really treat them with antibiotics, and they undergo just uh, unnecessary stress and and diagnostics and, and antibiotic treatment, which could have been avoided if, if you hadn't checked it in the first place. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Herrera. Um, before we go to break, Dr. Herrera, can you um, explain the, I know you explained how it's diagnosed, um, the symptoms that go with the C. diff uh, infection, uh, uh-huh. watery diarrhea uh, three times in uh, one day with 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any other symptoms a patient can tune into before um, or before they delay in getting um, seeking treatment? Sure. So, you know, other symptoms that could be associated with C. diff would include abdominal pain, abdominal cramping. Um, in certain cases, the inflammation is so severe that what you end up seeing also is just scant amount of blood. Um, you could see some mucus um, in your stool as well. Uh, and, and so typically when you have all these symptoms, you, you kind of take it into context with uh, with your risk factors. And, you know, I know we'll, we go into other risk factors along the antibiotics, but, um, you know, you talk about uh, healthcare exposure. So if, you, if you're somebody who's been in the hospital setting, um, if you're somebody who has uh, been around dialysis units or um, nursing home facilities, you know, those are other risk factors. So if you have a patient who says, you know, I was visiting, uh, you know, my grandmother at the nursing facility and I left and all of a sudden I started having diarrhea. Well, and it has a little bit of blood in it. I'm having abdominal cramping. It's waking me up at night. These are all symptoms that strongly suggest that something acute happened. Um, and, and I think in those situations, you'd want to uh, hone in on, on looking for an infectious etiology and in particular C. diff. Okay, Dr. Harrell, thank you. And at this time, we're going to um, pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will be discussing with Dr. Herrera the C. diff inflammatory bowel disease from bad to worse. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. (music) 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Join us on November 6th and 7th for the 7th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo taking place at the Doubletree Westport Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. To view the conference details and register online, visit the C. diff Foundation's website at cdifffoundation.org. Again, that's cdifffoundation.org. We look forward to meeting you in November. Rebiotics, a Faring Pharmaceuticals company, has set out to understand the connection between the microbiome and disease through clinical study and innovative science. Our clinical studies investigate the potential of the microbiome as a therapeutic option for patients with unmet medical needs. Our focus is currently on patients suffering from recurrent C. diff infection. Partnerships drive innovation in the growing field of microbiome technologies, and we're excited to continue to share our findings in the space. Visit Rebiotics.com, R-E-B-I-O-T-I-X.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean, dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to C. diff, spores, and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, and thank you for joining us today. We would like to take this opportunity to welcome back our guest, Dr. Henry Herrera, MD, gastroenterologist, who is here discussing C. diff and, C. Diff and inflammatory bowel disease from bad to worse. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Herrera. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. Oh, you're so welcome. And before the break, you were um, discussing, we were all, you were explaining C. difficile, the diagnosis and, and the risk factors. If you wouldn't mind continue on the topic of C. diff, um, can you explain how this infection is normally treated? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, previously, metronidazole, also known as Flagyl, was considered first-line treatment, uh, and it consisted of a 500-milligram tablet, and you take this tablet three times a day for about 14 days. Um, more recently, the guidelines have changed, in large part due to increasing resistance to metronidazole, alongside the side effects often experienced. So, I can tell you from a clinical standpoint, any time we give metronidazole, one of the main issues is just nausea, and just people don't don't like the way they feel after they take that. And so, you know, there, there were some issues with... Um, with uh, medication compliance. So um, vincomycin, 125 milligrams taken orally four times daily for 14 days is now considered first-line therapy for treatment of both mild and moderate C. diff infection. Uh, in 2011, another medicine came out called fidaxomycin. It's also known as Difficid. Uh, and this medicine is a 
uh, taken at 200 milligrams orally twice daily for 10 days. So what's interesting about this is that uh, studies have shown decreased rates of recurrence with fidaxomycin. The problem is that it's it's expensive. And so, you know, its cost often limits its use in practice. Um, now, when you're talking about recurrent disease, uh, you can either opt to repeat vancomycin treatment, or if you've tried vancomycin the first time, you can opt for fidaxomycin. Um, if you have a second recurrence, you can either do a tapered dose of vancomycin, uh, and that tapered dose typically is about four to six weeks in duration. Um, you can try fidaxomycin, or you can go to something called a fecal transplant, and we'll go into a lot more detail about what a fecal transplant consists of a little bit later on. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Herrera. And yes, there's a lot to be said and discussed with the fecal transplant, which we are looking forward to hearing more about. Um, Now, I'm really curious, and I know our global listeners are too, if you wouldn't mind taking this time to explain and introduce inflammatory bowel disease. Yes, so the the beast that is inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, the term inflammatory bowel disease is typically used to describe two major disease processes. So you have ulcerative colitis and you have Crohn's disease. In general, these conditions are characterized by recurrent episodes of relapsing inflammation of the GI tract, and they have variable clinical manifestations and complications, which can include but aren't limited to bleeding, perforation, and abscess formation, any of which may ultimately require aggressive medical or surgical therapy. So currently, the pathogenesis is incompletely understood, but it is felt to involve a complex interaction between environmental and host factors. Um, you know, age of onset of inflammatory bowel disease for both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's is typically between ages 15 and 30 years, uh, but it can be present. It can present at any age. There is a second smaller peak um, in uh, between 50 and 80 years of age. Um, but honestly, you know, in clinical practice, a lot of the patients that come in are, are in this younger category. Uh, the incidence of IBD tends to be lower in African-American and Hispanic populations compared to the Caucasian population. Um, you know, going, going through risk factors, if you have a family history of inflammatory bowel disease, it's been shown that you have a higher risk of developing it as well. Um, Interestingly, geographic location also plays a role. For example, the risk of IBD for some reason is higher in northern uh, United States compared to the south. And so it's possible this could be related to differences in sun exposure, uh, differences in vitamin D levels. But again, it's, it's not completely clear as to why this is the case. Interesting. Uh, smoking also appears to be a risk factor for Crohn's disease, um, but for some reason, ulcerative colitis doesn't show that same risk. Um, and then if you have an appendectomy or surgical removal of the appendix, um, that's actually a risk factor for development of Crohn's, but for some reason, it's been shown to be a protective factor for ulcerative colitis. So again, pathogenesis is incompletely understood, but what is known is that inflammatory bowel disease can be an extremely debilitating disease process. Yes, we believe that. We've heard a lot from our patients about this too, doctor. And you you wouldn't mind explaining, what's the difference between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease? Absolutely. So, you know, uh, clinically, they're they're very different. Um, You know, ulcerative colitis a lot of times tends to kind of scream out at you when, when you see it. And, and it's, it's not uncommon that patients will come in and, and you pretty much know that they have ulcerative colitis. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a condition in which the large intestine, otherwise known as the colon, has varied levels of inflammation. 
The important thing to know about ulcerative colitis is that the inflammation begins in the rectum and extends proximately um, to different extents in a continuous fashion. So what this means is that you don't just have inflammation in you know, the right side of your colon or the, the transverse colon, which is the segment that goes across it. If you do have inflammation in those areas, that means that you also have inflammation more distally. So, so it, there, there are no skip lesions, no skip areas. Uh, the inflammation is limited to the mucosa, and that's sort of the inner, innermost layer of the colon. So it's also typically characterized by relapsing and remitting episodes of inflammation. Um, severity of ulcerative colitis is generally classified as mild, moderate, or severe. Now, in contrast to ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease can be found anywhere from the mouth to the anus, and that makes it extremely difficult at times to diagnose. Um, inflammation is transmural, and what that means is that it's not just limited to that inner layer of the, of the intestine, but it, it can actually extend through the, uh, through the entire wall. It can cause inflammation around it. And so the problem with that is that it can result in something called uh, stricture formation. And, and so strictures are areas where there's narrowing or there's scar tissue, and, and that can result in, in really, really severe issues, uh, obstructive problems um, because of the scar tissue formation. So it can also result in abnormal connections known as fistula. Uh, fistula can go from one organ to another. It can go from one part of an organ to another part of the same organ, or it can even go from an organ to the skin. Um, Crohn's is characterized by skip lesions. So as compared to ulcerative colitis where you had uh, this kind of inflammation in a, con in a continuous fashion, in Crohn's, you can have long stretches of normal GI tract, um, and in between those normal areas, you have ulcerations or you have areas of wall thickening or inflammation or stricture. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult to diagnose. It, it's not uncommon, and actually it happens uh, fairly frequently where, where I'll get a patient coming in and, um, you know, the reason for referral will say irritable bowel syndrome or it'll say, you know, uh, chronic abdominal pain. Um, and it's not until you really start talking to the patient that, that it, it, symptoms don't sound quite like irritable bowel syndrome. It sounds more inflammatory, um, and, you know, you start ordering labs and, and start doing your diagnostics and you realize, well, this patient, in fact, has had Crohn's disease for the last five or six years, and, and it, it wasn't IBS at all. Um, but, you know, it's not because the physician didn't do a good job at, at, uh, at ordering diagnostics. It's just Crohn's is so difficult to diagnose at times. Absolutely. And thank you, Dr. Herrera. And what are the symptoms, the usual symptoms that patients display when they have ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease? Yeah, so, so, you know, like I said, ulcerative colitis symptoms can be pretty, pretty obvious. And classically, patients will come in and they'll say, you know, Doc, I've, I'm having bloody diarrhea. Um, and some patients will, will, will kind of downplay it. And, and I've had several patients, especially the younger patients, will say, you know, I, I think I'm just having a hemorrhoid. When you start asking them questions, they say, well, I'm going to the restroom 10 to 15 times a day. And by the way, each time I go to the restroom, it basically looks like I'm just pooping blood. Um, so, you know, classically, an 18 to 25-year-old patient will come in saying for the last several weeks to months, they've been having lower abdominal cramping, they've become more and more fatigued, um, their family members will have noticed that they're looking more and more pale, and they've had diarrhea. Um, the diarrhea can occur anywhere between a few times a day to over 10 times a day. Um, one of the important questions that I always ask any patient coming in with a complaint of diarrhea is whether or not the diarrhea wakes them up from sleep. And I think this is such an important question. It's probably one of the most important questions I ask in clinic, and I would urge, you know, primary care providers who are listening, your healthcare providers, anytime somebody complains about diarrhea, it's vital to ask if, they, if it wakes them up from a deep sleep, because if it does, then oftentimes that ends up being an inflammatory cause of 
diarrhea and requires uh, a, a workup um, that corresponds to an inflammatory process. So if it's waking you up, it's almost always an inflammatory condition. Um, as I said, you know, they can look pale, fatigued, and most of that, and most of the reason is because they're starting to become anemic. You know, they're, they're uh, bleeding pretty profusely, and so they're dropping their blood counts, they're dropping their iron levels. Um, iron deficiency alone will result in pretty debilitating fatigue. So to diagnose ulcerative colitis, a biopsy is needed, and this can be done with colonoscopy. So, okay, so ulcerative colitis... Pretty good little summary. Crohn's, on the other hand, is not as obvious. In fact, like I said before, um, oftentimes patients will come in with years of symptoms, and they're really kind of nonspecific symptoms, a little bit of abdominal cramping, a little bit of intermittent diarrhea, um, and they're gonna have the, they have the diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. Again, it's not because previous physicians did a poor job. Keep in mind, we have feet upon feet of small intestine, which is inaccessible to traditional EGD and colonoscopy. So because Crohn's disease, as we discussed, can involve anywhere between the mouth to the anus, oftentimes they'll have inflammation right smack in the middle of the small bowel. And to make matters worse, these flare-ups come and go. So by the time a patient comes in to discuss their symptoms, EGD, colonoscopy, CT scans ordered, that area of inflammation may be long gone. Um, as compared to ulcerative colitis, symptoms can be vague, so you can have change in bowel habits, mild loose stools, abdominal cramping. Uh, you can have anemia, but it may not be to as much as, a, as great of an extent as with ulcerative colitis. And then when you do an endoscopic evaluation, sometimes you'll see ulcerations at the very end of the small intestine, an area known as the terminal ileum or TI. And so this is accessible via colonoscopy. So anytime I do a colonoscopy on somebody who I suspect may have IBD, I always make sure to get into that terminal ileum because that may be the area where you can get your diagnosis. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when endoscopic okay. evaluation is negative, labs can clue you in that there's something inflammatory going on. So, you know, checking CRP levels, sed rate, platelet levels, that can all just basically paint the picture that there may be something inflammatory going on. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Herrera. That was an awful lot of information, and we appreciate that, really. Uh, we have a better understanding now um, about ulcerative colitis versus Crohn's. And, you know, before we go to break, if you wouldn't mind explaining what kind of an impact does C. diff infection have on an inflammatory bowel uh, disease patient? Yeah, so, you know, when you think about what C. diff causes, it causes um, colitis, it causes an infectious colitis. So you throw that on top of a second type of colitis, which is your idiopathic or inflammatory bowel disease colitis, and both of them put together are worse um, as compared to if you were to have one um, individually. So it, it, it can basically wreak havoc on, on patients who have both at the same time. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Herrera. At this time, we are going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing C. diff and inflammatory bowel disease from bad to worse with Dr. Henry Herrera. Please stay tuned. We'll be back after these messages. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. To help support the C. diff foundation, please visit our website, cdifffoundation.org forward slash donate, or call toll-free 1-844-4-C-DIFF. That's 1-844-367-2343. Join us in our fight against C. diff and help us continue our mission of educating and advocating for C. diff infection prevention, treatments, and environmental safety worldwide. Through your continued support, we can continue raising C. diff awareness and help save lives. Donate today. Visit cdifffoundation.org. Thank you. 
Rebiotics, a Faring Pharmaceuticals company, has set out to understand the connection between the microbiome and disease through clinical study and innovative science. Our clinical studies investigate the potential of the microbiome as a therapeutic option for patients with unmet medical needs. Our focus is currently on patients suffering from recurrent C. diff infection. Partnerships drive innovation in the growing field of microbiome technologies, and we're excited to continue to share our findings in the space. Visit Rebiotics.com, R-E-B-I-O-T-I-X.com. The CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety. Get answers to your questions. You're not alone. Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. To register for a session, call the C. diff Foundation at 919-201-1512 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. And thank you for joining us today. And we welcome you back to C. diff spores and more. Where our guest today is Dr. Henry Herrera, MD, gastroenterologist, and Dr. Herrera is here today discussing C. diff, an inflammatory bowel disease from bad to worse. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Dr. Herrera, and welcome back to the program. Yes, ma'am. It's been my pleasure so far. Ah, well, it's our pleasure having you here. We appreciate your time. And Dr. Herrera, before the break, you were discussing the impact of C. diff infection on inflammatory bowel disease patients. Um, can you explain what is an IBD or an inflammatory bowel disease flare? Yes, I can. So let me start by first describing remission. So remission means a patient doesn't have any active disease, no active inflammation. So as a gastroenterologist, you really want to try to achieve remission. So there's three types of remission. You have clinical remission, endoscopic remission, and histologic remission. When you're treating IBD, ideally you want to achieve all three of these. So going back to the question, when someone is talking about an IBD flare, what they're referring to is an acute increase in the inflammatory changes seen in ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease uh, along with the corresponding symptomatology. So typically it's first manifested clinically. So with ulcerative colitis, you may see an increase in bowel frequency, uh, increased amounts of blood or mucus in the stool. You may have increased abdominal cramping. And along with the bloody stools, if not treated promptly, you may start increase, having increased fatigue and generalized weakness from your anemia. Uh, with Crohn's disease, you may see increased bowel habits with or without blood. You may experience increased abdominal cramping. Um, but, you know, when it comes to an IBD flare, you often need to treat the patient with something that will induce remission. So when somebody, someone's having an IBD flare um, and develops C. diff infection, all of a sudden, as we discussed, you're combining two different types of colitis. The result is that both conditions become worse than if they were to occur independently of one another. So obviously, when both conditions occur simultaneously, they require more aggressive treatment. The problem with that comes um, in IBD in that, you know, typically the medicine that works the best in inducing remission is steroids. 
in the hospital setting, that tends to be a medicine called solumedrol or methylprednisolone. It's a type of intravenous steroid. When you give that to a patient with active C. diff infection without realizing it, and what can happen is you can create a major problem uh, that may result in increased morbidity and even mortality for the patient. So, you know, you, you should always have a high index of suspicion for C. diff infection in any patient with IBD who comes in with a quote-unquote flare. Looking at this from an outpatient perspective, uh, you know, it's, it's not uncommon that patients will call in and say, you know, hey, doc, I've, I've got a history of ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. I'm having a little bit of a flare-up in my, in my symptoms. Would you mind calling in some prednisone? Well, you know, gastroenterologists will typically ask that, those patients to come into clinic to be seen because you never know, that small flare may end up being a C. diff infection. Exactly. And Dr. Herrera, when should you suspect C. diff infection in inflammatory bowel disease patients? So any patient with inflammatory bowel disease coming in with flare symptoms need to be, needs to be screened for C. diff. And not only do I highly recommend that, it's actually recommended by the American College of Gastroenterology. So uh, quoting their guidelines, all patients who require hospitalization because of an IBD flare, as well as ambulatory patients with risk factors for C. diff infection or unexplained worsening of symptoms in the setting of previously quiescent disease should be tested for C. diff. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Herrera. And, you know, it seems um, that both IBD flares and C. diff infections would cause both abdominal pain and diarrhea. So how can you tell when the symptoms are caused by C. diff infection versus an IBD flare? Yeah, so to be totally honest with you, it's extremely difficult. Again, speaking from a clinician's standpoint, sometimes a good historian will tell their physician that their stool smell extremely foul or that this flare-up is quote-unquote different from others. You know, in those cases, at least in my experience, patients are usually right. Uh, those patients a lot of times are attuned to their bodies and can sometimes tell when it's not just a run-of-the-mill flare. So just, you know, keep, a, keep an eye out, uh, listen to the patient, and if they're saying that something's different, it probably is. Uh, and, you know, another situation where you may more strongly suspect C. diff is in a patient who's been in clinical remission for a long period of time, no medicines have been changed, they've been doing great, and all of a sudden they have this acute onset diarrhea. Keep in mind the typical major risk factors for C. diff, so previous antibiotic use, recent hospitalization, um, or visit to healthcare settings such as a dialysis unit, a rehab center, or a nursing home facility. So any, any patients with IBD that uh, had any of those risk factors, you always got to consider C. diff as, as a culprit. Okay. Um, Dr. Herrera, earlier um, when you began to explain and, and share the information uh, to tell us a little bit about the fecal microbiota transplant and investigational treatment, would you like to take this time to explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, so fecal microbiota transplant, uh, it's the infusion of healthy donor stool into the GI tract of another individual. So currently the FDA considers this an investigational treatment, as you said, uh, but it's best known for its use in patients with a current or refractory C. diff infection. So currently there's a variety of clinical trials in progress, and these trials can actually be looked up if you go to www.clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, you type up fecal transplant under the search tab, and a list of investigational studies will pop up. Uh, you know, for those of you who are interested or uh, considering joining a study. Uh, now, the concept, of, the concept of fecal transplant comes from the idea that the human GI tract lives in symbiosis with trillions of bacteria, as we talked about before. Um, so let's define symbiosis. It's the interaction between two different organisms living in close physical association, typically to the advantage of both. 
So, you know, those of us that are in a relationship, that sounds like a relationship with our spouse or partner, right? So each brings something to the table, but it may also be that each is deficient in other qualities needed to be fully happy. So you put those two together and they compensate for what the other lacks and both live in, in harmony. So that's, that's what you, uh, kind of the, the relationship that we have with our gut microbiome. We provide a safe home or habitat for these bacteria and in turn they provide us with an incredible number of benefits. And we touched on a bunch of them earlier in the show, so I'm not going to go into all of them, but um, to name a few, they produce vitamins, they break down foods, they assist in maturation of our immune system, and most important to this discussion, they prevent harmful bacteria from invading. But when, when we're ill, many of us will go to the doctor's office, we'll request a prescription for antibiotics to help alleviate the runny nose, the earache, that cough. It's important to note that in most of these situations, the, the cause or the pathogen is actually a virus. And so antibiotics likely aren't helping very much. What does occur is that the, these antibiotics that you're using are actually killing off the good bacteria in our gut. You throw that on top of a patient that already has dysbiosis due to inflammatory bowel disease, and what you've created is a perfect opportunity for a pathogen such as C. diff to invade our uh, GI tract and cause disease. So when you perform a fecal microbiota trans transplant, what you're doing is replenishing that diseased dysbiotic GI tract with new healthy bacteria. So in turn, you're recolonizing the gut and you're pushing out that C. diff bacteria. I like to think of it kind of as like the granddaddy of all probiotics. So, you know, I'm sure you're wondering, does someone just let me borrow some of their stool? Do I have to eat this stuff? Well, let me calm your fears. You don't have to eat it. You know, I think we can all agree that the idea of having someone else's poop placed into you sounds like it's straight out of an awful science fiction movie, right? But the truth is that these stool samples need to be very carefully screened prior to consideration for transplant to another person. Um, when I was in fellowship, we had a protocol that we used, and there's similar protocols throughout the country. The protocol usually involves asking the potential donor a series of medical questions along with performing a variety of blood and stool tests to rule out any evidence of pre-existing infection, inflammation, or other diseases that have the potential to be spread. Once that donor has been deemed appropriate and safe, they're given a container to provide a sample, and then that sample is then given to the microbiology department where they liquefy it, they refrigerate it, and they keep it until it's, until it's ready for use. So there's actually a company called Open Biome, which does, also does testing for you, and that sells a stool to providers for use. Um, I don't have any monetary investment or interest. Uh, I will say we do use Open Biome here and have had great results. So it's really just a matter of facility preference. The bottom line is that stool samples need to be tested, and they need, we need to make sure that there's no communicable diseases uh, that we can give to the, to the patient. Um, so, you know, to that note, earlier this year on June 13th, the FDA actually put out a notice regarding two unfortunate incidents uh, in which immunocompromised patients were treated with fecal microbiota transplant, and they developed something called ESBL E. coli. So what ESBL stands for is extended spectrum beta-lactamase, um, and in long, to make a long story short, it's uh, a type of bacteria that's very uh, resistant to, tr to traditional antibiotics, so it makes it difficult to treat. One of those two patients subsequently died. Uh, the donor stool was later tested and found that the same ESBL E. coli was present, so that confirmed that these patients were infected by the transplant. So the FDA now recommends additional questioning regarding risk factors for colonization with multidrug-resistant organisms, as well as uh, multidrug-resistant organism testing of donor stool. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Herrera, for sharing that information and how they can, um, patients and families can look more into um, the clinical trials also in, in, a, in progress. And Dr. Herrera, how effective is fecal microbiota transplant for the general population? And how does having an IBD affect 
affect the success rate in this? Yeah, so believe it or not, and, and you know, keep in mind that whenever you give fecal microbiota transplant, it's usually in these refractory cases, these cases that are the, the, the toughest of the tough, the ones that have already failed, you know, vancomycin and flagyl and, and deficit. Even in these really difficult-to-treat cases, um, there's been studies that have shown a greater than 90% successful eradication rate. Uh, it was, uh, so, so there's studies that, uh, that show greater than 90%. Um, keep in mind that you know, these are the worst of the worst cases, and you're still getting great results. Now, it's not as good in patients with C. diff and inflammatory bowel disease, but it's still pretty decent. You know, there, there's uh, some studies, a retrospective study of immunosuppressed patients with C. diff, um, and it showed 86% of those patients were cured of C. diff after one transplant. Um, so, you know, it, it's still pretty good in patients with IBD, not quite as good, but um, it, it's, it's decent. It's definitely the best option you have in situations where uh, traditional medical management uh, is unsuccessful. Okay, thank you, Dr. Herrera. And before we go to break, can you explain how having a C. diff infection um, affects the standard or the usual IBD treatment? Sure. So, you know, when you think about IBD treatment, you have several different options, right? You have your aminosalicylates, which for simplicity, just think of it as anti-inflammatory medicines. Um, then you have your immunosuppressants, and this includes azathioprine, your methotrexate, 6-mercaptopurine, and then you have the, the heavy hitters, the anti-TNF medicines, and then the newer medicines such as Intivio and Stellara, um, and then you have your steroids. So, you take these medicines, you put them into two categories, medications that induce remission and medications that maintain remission. So when someone has a flare, what you're wanting is a medicine that's going to induce remission. Um, a lot of these medicines are able to do that, but the fastest and most effective of these is the corticosteroids. So IV steroids in the hospital are incredibly useful for patients struggling through a flare and can typically produce pretty substantial symptom improvement within just a couple of days. The problem is that caution needs to be used when giving steroids in the setting of infection because this can result in destabilization of the infection and it can allow the, the infection to, to proliferate. So clinicians need to have a high index of suspicion when a patient with IBD comes in with a flare-up. Make sure you screen all of them for C. diff. Uh, there's no clear definitive data or guidelines to follow for IBD flares that occur in the setting of C. diff. Um, there has been some limited evidence showing that use of antibiotics for empiric treatment concurrently with lower than usual doses of steroids is more effective than high-dose steroids alone. Um, but once the results of the C. diff test come back, you can decide on either discontinuing the antibiotic if it's negative or continuing it if positive. Uh, last thing is anti-TNF agents like Humira or Remicade have also been considered as an option for induction of remission in patients who have concurrent C. diff infection. But again, as previously discussed, data is conflicting regarding the risk versus benefit of anti-TNF medications in these settings. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Herrera. And at this moment, we're going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will be continue discussing C. diff and inflammatory bowel disease from bad to worse with Dr. Henry Herrera. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Join us on November 6th and 7th for the 7th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo taking place at the Doubletree Westport Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. To view the conference details and register online, visit the C. diff Foundation's website at cdifffoundation.org. Again, that's cdifffoundation.org. We look forward to meeting you in November. 
the CDF Foundation offers global community support sessions. CDF can affect anyone at any age at any location in the world. Receive support from topic experts sharing information on nutrition, mental health, C. difficile prevention, treatments, and environmental safety. Get answers to your questions. You're not alone. Support is just a phone call or mouse click away. To register for a session, call the C. diff Foundation at 919-201-1512 or visit us on the web at cdifffoundation.org. Rebiotics, a faring pharmaceuticals company, has set out to understand the connection between the microbiome and disease through clinical study and innovative science. Our clinical studies investigate the potential of the microbiome as a therapeutic option for patients with unmet medical needs. Our focus is currently on patients suffering from recurrent C. diff infection. Partnerships drive innovation in the growing field of microbiome technologies, and we're excited to continue to share our findings in the space. Visit Rebiotics.com, R-E-B-I-O-T-I-X.com. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean, dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now, back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to C. Diff, C. diff spores and more, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us today uh, with our guest, Dr. Henry Herrera, gastroenterologist who has been here discussing C. diff and inflammatory bowel disease from bad to worse. Thank you so much again for joining us today, Dr. Herrera, and welcome back to the program. All righty. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Dr. Herrera, would you mind um, just recapping today's program, if you can, just um, reviewing some key points that you'd like our global listeners to take away with them today? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think the main point that I wanted to stress is to make sure you're an antibiotic steward. For the general population, understand most infections that occur viral and the antibiotics aren't necessary. Uh, for the time that sim- uh, most of the time symptoms will resolve within a few days. So when antibiotics are required, use them cautiously, only you know, take them for the recommenda- uh, recommended duration of time. Make sure you protect that gut microbiome because it provides you with countless health benefits. Be aware of your risk factors for C. diff infection, particularly exposure to healthcare settings and antibiotic use. For the healthcare providers and hospital employees listening, and be sure to wash your hands on a regular basis, use the gowns that are provided by infection control, remind your coworkers to do the same. If you do have any symptoms suggestive of infectious diarrhea, consult with your primary care physician, speak with a gastroenterologist who can then assess whether or not you'd benefit from a C. diff stool test. And then regarding inflammatory bowel disease, remember that infection with C. diff has symptoms identical to that of an IBD flare. So C. diff screening is absolutely necessary when flare symptoms uh, occur. Wonderful. And Dr. Herrick, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing your contact information with everyone. 
Sure. Yeah. So, you know, quickly, I wanted to personally thank you for this opportunity. Um, it was my absolute pleasure. I've been humbled to be take part in the show. I want to thank your audience listening in for spending an hour with me. Uh, you know, we've been joking around about the, the pace. I'm sure everybody's kind of had their uh, their seatbelts on, but I wanted to make sure I gave enough information. And, and I know it was kind of a big uh, topic to cover, but thank you so much for sticking around with us. I really appreciate it. Um, I want to say one thing I've been extremely passionate about is increased physician approachability and accessibility for our patients. Um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you saw your physician once every six to 12 months for a physical, and then depending on your physician, maybe saw him for five or 10 minutes before being let out for blood tests, and then, you know, another six to 12 months follow-up. So contact information typically consisted of a telephone number, and that was about it. Nowadays, this new generation of physicians is very much tech-savvy, and I think it's crucial that we take advantage of this for the good of our patients. Healthcare doesn't need to stop when the patient leaves the room. We have social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, where more and more physicians are engaging, engaging in productive dialogue, uh, where accurate evidence-based clinical recommendations and facts are being shared. You know, that's been my passion over the past year, and I'm excited to continue to educate both my local community as well as the expanded community on social media. Um, I'd be happy to give you my contact information. So my email address is h.herrera at dhr-rgv.com. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Henry Herrera, and you'll find daily posts on a variety of GI-related topics. Uh, Once again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, It's been uh, an educational experience, and I hope it's been the same for your audience. Absolutely has, Dr. Herrera, and we can't thank you enough for being with us here today, and thank you for your kind words, and we thank you for joining us today on CDIP Spores and More, and we're grateful for your dedication in the healthcare community, and we look forward to having you back again next year for updates, and thank you again for being here. Thank you. You're welcome. And at this time, the members of the CDF Foundation wish to acknowledge all of the organizations around the globe dedicated to improving health, the organizations and professionals reaching, researching, and developing new products uh, and ways to address C. difficile infections in prevention, treatment, and protect protecting the gut microbiome, clinical trials, diagnostics, and environmental safety worldwide. To learn more about the C. diff infections and recurrent C. diff infection clinical trials are in progress and how you can take part in the clinical study, please visit the C. diff Foundation's website, www.cdifffoundation.org. Please help them to help you to help others. We wish to thank Pfizer for being the diamond sponsor of the 7th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo, which is being hosted on November 6th and 7th at the Doubletree Westport Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. We're grateful for the international keynote speakers joining us for the two-day conference and the corporate sponsors and industry leaders in the C. diff community who will be providing data focused on C and leading healthcare-required infections, the microbiome research, sepsis, clinical trials, environmental safety, and so much more. For more information and to register, please visit the C. diff Foundation's website. Don't delay because accommodations and available seating is now severely limited. We look forward to learning more together with you in November. We also wish to send out our get well wishes to all the patients who are being treated and recovering from a C. diff infection and the many wellness-draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala, with our reminder that none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health, continued healing, and a good day. (music) 
Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We'll be right back.